Yeah, who followed you? Warshaw. <laughs> he had a tough time. <laughs> well, in this case, because the speaker is here every month anyway, and is perfectly willing to pay if you let him talk about the guy he wants to talk about, there was a certain amount left in the budget. And at great expense, uh, we were able to persuade the distinguished writer of uh, the Ballad for Straddle Trench, as <laughs> some of you know, uh, Shadrach, Nathaniel, and Dan, <laughs> and some other great uh, poetic uh, masterpieces, to uh, write uh, a special musical piece in honor of the speaker tonight. And uh, song sheets have been passed to all of you. And we're going to sing together the Ballad of Stephen Herbert. No, 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 don't give it to that scum. <laughs> and this is to the tune of Lydia Pinkham. <laughs> you all know that? I'll sing, I'll sing it one time for Lydia Pinkham. We, we, we expected to have Arnold Alexander here to play piano. <laughs> But I'm going to have to do this a cappella, and then you're going to join. The Lydia Pinkham version goes, Oh, we'll sing a Lydia Pinkham And her love for the human race How she sells her vegetable compound And the papers publish her face Now we're going to sing that first verse to that same tune. You all joined in on the first verse. Then I'll do a couple of verses, and then you come back and do that first verse over again. Are you all ready? All right. Let's all sing of Stephen Hurlburt, fill the rebel's heart with fear. How he held the line of Shiloh, famous son of Belvedere. Other leaders looked for shelter, gave their orders from the rear. But where fighting was the fiercest, stood the sun of Belvedere, stood there in the awful orchard, till at last the day was saved. Credit goes to Stephen Hurlbut as the bravest of the brave. All together. Let's all sing of Stephen Hurlbut, fill the rebel's heart with fear. Stood there in the awful orchard, have the son of Belvedere. When at last the war was over and the victory dearly won, he returned to peacetime problems. Herbert's work had just begun. The Grand Army of the Republic sought a man to take command. They selected Stephen Hurlbut as the greatest in the land. And they sent him off to Congress, and he labored there until he convinced his fellow members, and they passed the pension bill. All together, let's all sing of Stephen Hurlbut, fill the rebel's heart with fear. How he held the line at Shiloh, famous son of Belvedere. Now comes the sad part. <clears throat> Some have said he filled his pockets, 
but we know with some relief that they never, never proved that Stephen Hurlbut was a thief. <laughs> so we'll tell of Stephen Hurlbut, fill the rebel's heart with fear, how he held the line at Shiloh, famous son of Belvedere. And tonight we have a speaker. Gerhard Clausius is here. And he'll talk of Stephen Hurlbut, fellow son of Belvedere. Now that's our first. I think that's the first time that at least the first part of an introduction speaker has been musical. <laughs> Not too damn musical. Good work, Roy. I think after that, we ought to go into the recording business. Everyone else oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we lost enough money. Now we really tried now. Uh, but this is singing. <laughs> For those of you who are in attendance, on that fateful evening of May 6, 1972, on the battlefield tour to Vicksburg, we'll never forget when a distinguished member of this organization rose and delivered a most eloquent and stirring tribute to our great Civil War general. Quickly a hush fell over the crowd as he thread his way with expertise through the astute man's career. From the banks of the Tennessee to the mighty Mississippi, his military career was told. Could it be that history forgot and we had discovered a great new soldier? The Army of the Potomac had give us the, given us the great General Schimmel Finney, and from out of the West, the Army of the Tennessee had produced a new hero, Stephen Augustus Herbert. In a more serious note, I think we're most privileged tonight to have one of our own, Dr. Clausius, a very learned man, a member of long standing and former president of this round table. He belongs to many historical societies and organizations delivered over 100 talks, and his presentation tonight is one that we've all eagerly looked forward to. Speaking for myself, I have a very special feeling for Dr. Clausius, for when I first came into the roundtable, he's one of the few members that made me feel welcome and, and comfortable at the meetings here. President Lincoln claimed his friend Herbert was the best stump speaker in the state. So gentlemen, it's my privilege to present Herbert's other friend, Dr. Gerhard Clausius. My name is Stephen A. Hurlbut. I was a major general in the Great Civil War, one of the ten major generals from the state of Illinois. Without me, the Union might have lost the war. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina in 1815. The fact that I was born in Charleston, South Carolina, a southern city, and became a general in the Union Army might seem strange, but other southerners also served the Union cause. Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga, for one. I died in Lima, Peru in 1882, where I was serving my country as a minister in the diplomatic corps. I came back to let you know that there were other generals in the Civil War besides Grant. Lee, Sherman, Jackson, Longstreet, and Schimmelfenig. 
<laughs> and up till this evening, I have never been mentioned in Marshall Krolik's quizzes. <laughs> My father was Martin Luther Hurlbut, who was a Unitarian preacher and a college professor, and who came to Charleston to teach in a nearby college. His ancestors, ancestors came from England or Ireland in 1600s and settled in Saybrook, Connecticut. Like Abraham Lincoln, I also served in an Indian war as I was a member of the South Carolina militia and went to Florida in 1832 to take part in the Seminole War. I came out as a lieutenant. After serving in the Seminole War, I entered the law office of Lewis Pettigrew, an eminent lawyer in Charleston and a man of strong union sentiments who was against secession. I was a law student and clerk for Pettigrew. Even after South Carolina seceded, Pettigrew retained his pro-union sentiments but because he was so respected, he was not molested. Even my most astute biographers of the future will not know why I left Charleston to seek my fortune in the Middle West, but I did. All that ever has been said was that I left Charleston under unusual circumstances, and I'll let it go with that. <laughs> in September of 1845, I got off the stagecoach in a little Midwestern town called Belvedere, Illinois. It was autumn, and the smell of burning leaves, the crisp air and the fields of ripening grain and corn seemed to bring back my New England ancestry, and I decided to stay here and pursue the practice of law. By 1847, I was sufficiently acquainted so that I was elected a delegate to the Illinois State Constitutional Convention held in Springfield, Illinois. The people of Belvedere were from Yankee stock, and my anti-slavery sentiments agreed well with them. While in Springfield, I met another young lawyer who was also born in a southern state. His name was Abraham Lincoln, and he had a great influence on my life. We became friends immediately as we were in agreement on the issues of state rights and slavery, and we were both adherents to the Whig Party. From the moment I met him, I knew he would be a man of destiny, a star to which I would gladly hitch my wagon. We corresponded and saw each other in Springfield. My life in Belvedere, except for politics, was uneventful. Like Abraham Lincoln at that time, I supported the Whig Party, but we were not too successful, as the Whig Party was fading from the political, political scene. By 1855, the state's rights and slavery questions were fanning the fires of emotion throughout the country, and some of the young men of the town asked me to organize a militia company they having become acquainted with my military experience. We called the company the Boone Rifles after our county and the great explorer. We took part in parades, wore fancy uniforms, and gave balls. One of the rules of the company stated that when a member was in uniform, he was forbidden to enter an establishment where liquor was served. For that re reason, the uniforms were quickly taken off after our drills, and they would not wear out so fast. <laughs> When the Republican Party came into being, I aligned myself with it as I felt it would be the party of the future. Also, my friend Abraham Lincoln supported that party. In fact, he was mentioned as a vice presidential candidate at the first national convention of the new party in 1856. The convention chose Fremont as their presidential candidate, and I supported him and made speeches advocating his election. In 1858, I was elected to the Illinois State Legislature as a Republican. The Republican Party was rapidly being noticed, 
as it was on the rise as a political power in the state as well as nationally. In June of 1858, my friend Lincoln was made the nominee for the office of senator from the state of Illinois as a Republican. His opponent was Stephen A. Douglas, who had been a Springfield lawyer and who was a friend of Lincoln's during Lincoln's early days in Springfield. They also served in the state legislature together. Douglas was the incumbent and a Democrat and had set his sights on being president. Part of the campaign was a series of debates to be held in the various congressional districts. The second debate of the series of seven was to be held in Freeport, Illinois on August 27th of 1858. As Freeport is not too far from Belvedere, I organized a special train to bring the people of the surrounding area to Freeport to hear the debate. The Boone Rifles attended and gave a very fine marching exhibition. In the evening before the debate, I was called upon to speak. I explained my stand against the re-election of E.B. Washburn as member of Congress from this district as he was running both as a Whig and a Republican, and I felt his platform on slavery was much too weak. Owen Lovejoy, the great abolitionist and brother of the martyr Elijah Lovejoy, also spoke that night as the stage was set for the great debate the next day. I was incensed with the Freeport newspaper which described my friend Lincoln thus, resembling a skeleton of a greyhound, queer-looking and queer-spoken, and if P.T. Barnum could procure him as an exhibit, his fortune would be made. So ridiculous and laughable show has never been presented to the American people. I'll bet they had to eat those words after Lincoln became president and saved the Union. I hope that future newspapers will never describe honorable men in such a degrading fashion, especially Republicans. <laughs> the Freeport debate proved to be the most important one of the whole series, for it was here that the unfortunate Douglas had to answer Lincoln's famous question, can the people of a United States territory in any lawful way against the wishes of any citizen of the United States, excludes slavery from its limits prior to the formation of a state constitution. I was sitting in a position where I could see Douglas, and I saw the look of chagrin on his face when my friend Lincoln asked him that question. No matter how Douglas answered the question, he would alienate either the North or the South. Douglas's reply repudiated the Dred Scott decision and thereby split the Democratic Party and thus paved the way for Lincoln's election as president in 1860. Lincoln lost the senatorial race to Douglas, but Lincoln now became nationally known. I campaigned for Lincoln throughout the state, and Lincoln said I was the best stumpy, stump speaker in the whole state of Illinois. During the period of 1858 to 1860, I served in the state legislature, and when that body was not in session, I made speeches advocating the Republican Party. I ran for re-election to the state legislature and was again successful. On November 6th of 1860, my friend Lincoln was elected president, and I take some credit for his success as I campaigned both for his nomination and his election. I was in Washington for the inauguration, and shortly afterwards, Lincoln called me in and asked me to be his personal but secret investigator and go to Charleston to see how the people of South Carolina really felt about secession. Did they agree with the politicians, or was there a chance that they would be loyal to the Union, in spite of such hot-headed state rights advocates as Governor Pickens and his group? There were two reasons why my friend Lincoln picked me for this mission. One, he knew me to be an able lawyer and experienced politician, 
and two, I had a sister living in Charleston, and I could use the excuse for my going as my desire to visit her. Ward Lamon, another friend of Lincoln's and a former law partner and sometimes bodyguard, was to be in Charleston at the same time. He was to be on government business, and it was hoped that publicity would be centered on him and I could go about my mission unnoticed. Lamon had several narrow escapes from violence, and hostile crowds threatened him several times. I was not comfortable either, and left after a short stay. I had hoped to go to Fort Sumter and see Major Anderson, as General Scott had given me a letter to him, but public feeling was running so high against the North that I did not dare risk the trip out to the fort. This was just a short time before the fort was fired on. In my report to Lincoln, I told him that there would be no appeasing the South Carolinians, that the war was inevitable. South Carolina would accept nothing but separate nationality. I was correct in my opinion, as subsequent events proved. When the news of the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter was received in Belvedere, a mass meeting was called, attended by all the citizens in both political parties. Many speeches were made, and I gave a speech that brought the greatest feeling of patriotism from the crowd. A call for volunteers was made, and I was first to sign my name on the muster roll. With my signing, the fall of the Confederacy was assured, and the Union would be preserved. <laughs> 115 men signed up, and I was elected their captain. We telegraphed the governor, volunteering our services. This was on May 6th. We received orders from Springfield to report to Freeport, Illinois, on May 11th. Another meeting of the townspeople was called, and it was decided to send the volunteers to Freeport properly uniformed. So a group of citizens were sent to Chicago to procure materials. They came back with the materials the next day, and immediately the tailors in town, assisted by many of the women, produced handsome uniforms for the group before they left for Freeport. This group became Company B of the 15th Illinois Volunteer Infantry, the first regiment in the state to muster in for the three-year hitch. When the group reached Freeport, they were joined by other men from Winnebago, McHenry, Stevenson, and other northern Illinois counties. They held election of officers, and exercising a lack of good judgment, they did not elect me as colonel of the regiment. <laughs> Although disappointed that they did not recognize my ability and qualifications, I was pretty sure that bigger things were in store for me. Through the influence of Northern Illinois friends and politicians, my friend Lincoln commissioned me a Brigadier General. My commission was dated May 17, 1861, on the same date as some of the other great generals of the war, such as Sherman, Pope, Grant, Curtis, Siegel, and McClernand. Schimmelfennig, your hero, was not made a Brigadier General until November of 1862. On July 11th, I was given my orders to report to Quincy, Illinois, where I was assigned to the command of Northern Missouri, a hotbed of secessionism, where I would be under the command of General John Pope. Before leaving for Missouri, I went in to see one of the town characters, Josh Juicebucket. Josh had served in the War of 1812 in the Mexican War, and I often visited with him. Uh, Josh, I said, I understand that uh, the morals of the young men in the army are sometimes questionable, and I'll have a lot of young men under my command, and I'm awfully anxious to do what I can to protect their morals. I understood that sometimes saltpeter was introduced to their food to keep them from being too amorous. Does it work? 
Well, Josh was 89 or 90 years old, and he shook his head. He says, well, it's beginning to. <laughs> Missouri had a governor who was secession-minded, and he wished his state to become part of the Confederacy. When he received the call from Washington to enlist soldiers for the protection of the Union, he called it illegal. His sentiments, together with those of many large landholders and slave owners, was that the Confederacy was more to their liking than the Union. Governor Jackson called for a convention to consider the state withdrawing from the Union. The delegates to this convention overwhelmingly voted against secession and thereby censored their governor. This was March 19, 1861. On April 22nd, the governor, Claiborne Jackson, called out the state militia and set up a training camp near St. Louis. They even received some armaments from the Confederacy. Fortunately for the federal cause, there was that time two individuals who were determined that the state of Missouri would not go to the Confederacy. Captain Nathaniel Lyons and Francis Preston Blair saved the state for the Union. Lyons was a captain in charge of the St. Louis Arsenal in May of 1861. He was a man of courage and strong convictions. Through stealth, he had all the arms removed from the arsenal so they would not fall into the hands of the secessionists. Disguised as a woman, he surveyed the camp of Governor Jackson's militia, and seeing it poorly organized and ill-equipped, he decided the next day to take the troops organized by Blair and demand that the camp surrender. Taken by surprise, the militia surrendered and their weapons were confiscated by the Federals. Returning into St. Louis with the militia as prisoners, the Federals were taunted and harassed by a mob of civilians. Shots were fired and 20 persons were killed. A spectator to this tragic affair was William T. Sherman, who was a civilian at that time. General Grant was also in St. Louis, but was a, not a spectator. When I arrived in Missouri in July of 1861, I could see that stern measures would be needed to teach the Missourians, bent on leaving the Union, that vandalism and destruction of public property would not be tolerated. I immediately issued a proclamation to the people of northern Missouri informing them that anyone caught destroying railroads or any public property would be tried by a military court and if found guilty would be executed. It was harsh, but I felt it had to be done to ensure the safety of the loyal citizens. One of my first orders in Missouri was to order Colonel U.S. Grant to take his 21st Regiment to Mexico, Missouri to guard trestles and bridges on the railroads in that vicinity. At that time, John Pope and I gave orders to Grant. Later, the reverse was true, and he gave orders to us. Grant was backed by my former political foe, E.B. Washburn of Galena, who was a leading Republican and a congressman, and who had great political influence. Grant, being a West Pointer, soon was rapidly climbing the ladder of command. And he was a pretty good general, too. On August 11, 1861, a train was fired upon by vandals in Marion County, the county seat being Palmyra, Missouri. I thereupon issued an order to the officials of the county and the city of Palmyra that unless the perpetrators of the action were not apprehended and turned over to federal authorities, the citizens of the county would have to supply enough provisions to feed a whole regiment. And if the provisions were not forthcoming promptly, they would be taken wherever they could be found in the county. And if still the marauders were not found and arrested, a regiment of Union soldiers would be quartered in the homes of the town of Palmyra. I also caused to be arrested a Mr. McGaffey, who had been the last speaker of the Missouri House of Representatives. 
He had been uttering some derogatory statements against the Union. As punishment, I had him digging ditches in the hot sun. Orders from General Fremont caused me to cancel these orders. I was pretty tough on the rebel sympathizers. During my stay in Missouri, I happened to go by two of my soldiers bearing a dead mule. One was a boy from Missouri and the other boy was from Illinois. And they got arguments to what they call the beast. And the boy from uh, Missouri said, we call them mules in Missouri. And the boy from Illinois says, we call them asses. And they argued and the chaplain came along and they said, we'll ask this learned man just how he should call his animal. And the chaplain listened to them a while and he said, well, in the Bible, they call it an ass. So it should be called an ass. Short time later, one of the wives of one of the officers came around, was visiting, and she said, are you boys digging a foxhole? And the boy from Missouri said, not according to scripture. <laughs> While I was wasting my time and talents on, rain, on railroad vandals and other petty doings, the Union forces were suffering defeats in such places as Wilson Creek and Lexington, Missouri. I wish that I had been present in these battles, and maybe we would, maybe we would not have been defeated. Later, in March of 1862, General Curtis defeated the Confederates at Pea Ridge, and the state of Missouri was made safe for the Union. In Missouri, I developed a severe attack of dysentery and was sick for several days. I had to drink considerable quantities of whiskey, it being the only remedy available. General Pope happened to see me when the dysentery was at its worst. <laughs> and he got the silly idea that I was intoxicated and had me arrested. Higher authority had me released immediately and I was sent home to recuperate. I was home but a short time when I received orders from General Calic, who was then in command at St. Louis, to report to him. This was in December of 1861. General Sherman was also in St. Louis in charge of training soldiers at Jefferson Barracks. Some weeks previously, Sherman had been accused of being mentally deranged because he had made statements that it would take at least 200,000 men to subdue, subdue the South. This statement was made in confidence to the then Secretary of War Cameron, but somehow it leaked out to the newspapers. The press distorted it and sensationalized it to the extent that Sherman considered leaving the service. Halleck had asked Sherman to observe me and ascertain whether I would be able to, com to command and fit to be a Brigadier General. Sherman reported back to Halleck that he thought I was above average in my knowledge of military drill. In February of 1862, after the fall of Forts Henry and Donaldson to Grant, I was ordered to report to Grant at Fort Donaldson. One of Grant's first orders to me was to take two regiments and patrol the town and area and prevent any officers or men visiting any home without express authority. I knew he picked me, knowing that I was a straight-laced individual. Or maybe he thought it takes one to catch one. <laughs> On February 24, 1862, I was given command of the 4th Division, Army of the Tennessee. Up to the defeat of the Confederates at Mill Springs and the fall of Fort Henry and Donaldson, the South had been in control of all the area from the Mississippi River to the Atlantic Ocean and south of the Ohio River. After the fall of Forts Henry and Donaldson, this condition changed, and the Confederates withdrew their defense line, abandoning even Nashville, Tennessee. They concentrated their forces along the line of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad, running east and west, which intersected the Mobile and Ohio Railroad, running north and south at Corinth, Mississippi. The Union forces, under the overall command of General Halleck, 
headquartered in St. Louis, now decided that the strategy would be to go down the, up the Tennessee River, destroy bridges, and attack the Confederates at the vicinity of Corinth, Mississippi. The Confederates were now under the command of General Albert S. Johnston, considered one of the ablest generals in the South. Through some misunderstanding regarding communications or from pure jealousy, Halleck relieved Grant of command on February 17, 1862, and the command was conferred on General C.F. Smith, a former West Point instructor who was on the faculty when Grant and Sherman were cadets. He played a prominent part in the capture of Fort Donaldson, and it was said that he had suggested to Grant to demand the unconditional surrender of Donaldson. General Smith set up headquarters at Savannah, Tennessee on the river. Through fate, General Smith became incapacitated from a leg injury, which later took his life. And the fact that Grant had friends in Washington who were beginning to ask questions, Grant was returned to command. On the 18th of March, 1862, I disembarked my division at Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River near a small country church called Shiloh. I was the first to arrive on the Shiloh battlefield. Sherman's division, then Prentice's, McClernand's, and W.H. Wallace's divisions followed. The division of Lew Wallace, who later wrote the bestseller Ben-Hur, was stationed at Crump's Landing between Savannah and Pittsburgh Landing on the west side of the river, as was Pittsburgh Landing, in all about 40,000 men. Halleck had definitely ordered that the army should avoid any general engagement and even stated to retreat rather than risk battle. This was certainly not in keeping with the philosophy of Grant, Sherman, or myself. But because Halleck so ordered, we sat at Pittsburgh Landing, spending the time organizing and drilling our army, which, with the exception of those who fought at Henry and Donaldson, was composed mostly of raw recruits and untrained men and officers. Pittsburgh Landing was a good place to defend, as the river protected its rear and also made a good avenue for supplies. A large stream was on our right in front called Snake Creek, with its confluence Owl Creek formed a formidable barrier. And on our left, another water barrier called Lick Creek. This was early in the war, and entrenchments were then not used. Later in the war, a place like this could have been made impregnable in just a short time. Grant had kept his headquarters at Savannah, Tennessee, and awaited there the arrival of the troops of the Army of the Cumberland that had been ordered by Halleck to join Grant's forces. The Cumberland Army, under the command of General Carlos Buell, left Nashville, Tennessee, March 15th. The Confederates, massing their troops at Corinth through their intelligence sources, knew of the planned junction of the Federal forces, so decided to attack the Union forces before Buell and his army could join Grant. At Corinth, about April 1st, the Confederates had about 40,000 troops and expected additional manpower from General Van Dorn, who was to join them, but was having trouble obtaining transportation. Before Johnston arrived at Corinth, General Beauregard, the New Orleans hero of Fort Sumter, had evolved a battle plan to defeat the Union forces of Pittsburgh Landing. The plan, in brief, was to attack the Union forces by surprise and pin them between the Tennessee River and the swamps around Snake and Owl Creek. And by the time Buell would arrive with the Army of the Cumberland, they could turn and handily defeat him. Johnson agreed to the plans of Beauregard and set out to implement them. He had his subordinate commanders besides Beauregard, who was second in command, General Hardy, General Breckinridge, a former vice president and an opponent of Lincoln's in the 1860 campaign, General Polk, who was a former clergyman, 
and Braxton Bragg, the tough disciplinarian. Albert Johnson expected to reach Pittsburgh Landing April 3rd, but the bad roads and the mixed-up planning kept the Confederates from reaching the immediate vicinity of Shiloh Church until the night of April 5th. Because frequent encounters between Confederate skirmishers and Federal pickets had been occurring, General Beauregard at this time advised calling the whole expedition off, as the element of surprise would now be lacking, and he felt the Confederates would be fighting against Federal entrenchments. While a conference of Confederate command was taking place, considering Beauregard's plan to withdraw, a sharp engagement took place between a reconnaissance party of Prentice's division and skirmishers from Hardy's Corps, which caused Johnston to believe that the armies had already collided. He adjourned the meeting and was said to have said, tomorrow we will water our horses in the Tennessee River. That might have taken place, but he did not realize to do so he would have to run over the fighting 4th Division commanded by me. When I heard the firing early in the morning, I ordered all my troops out to make ready for action. All morning the fighting raged along the whole front, our false forces falling back slowly and inflicting severe casualties on the Confederates and also suffering greatly ourselves. The afternoon found the Confederate strategy being upset as they could not turn the Union left as they had planned. This was because of the stubborn resistance of Colonel Stewart's brigade of Sherman's division, which was on the extreme left, anchored at Lake Creek, and to the great resistance of my division near the famous Peach Orchard. I had already sent a brigade under Colonel Veach to assist McClernand and Sherman on our right, and another brigade to assist Colonel Stewart on our left. And with the remaining personnel of the division, we resisted the attacks at the Peach Orchard, hurling back the, ch the charges of the Confederates seven times. Grant visited me sometime between 10 and 11 o'clock. When not on his horse, he had to use a crutch, as his horse had fallen on him just a day or two before. He asked about our ammunition and praised our stand. Because General Johnson realized that the Union left must be turned, he came to the right of his lines at 2.30 p.m., hoping to spur his troops to a greater effort to turn our lines. Shortly after arriving, he was killed, maybe by one of the men in my division. Beauregard himself mentioned how stoutly was the resistance of my 4th Division on the Union left. We finally had to move back to where Grant had his heavy siege guns planted near the landing, and as the day was now nearly spent, and the one last terrific charge of the enemy was repulsed, we settled down for the night. The Confederates had made a severe tactical blunder during the day, which cost them valuable time. The resistance of Prentice's division was so great that after being surrounded, they refused to concede. The Confederates thereupon ordered all their artillery from other fronts to, or in order to dislodge Prentice. And finally, after severe shelling from the largest concentration of artillery ever assembled in any place up to that time, Prentice surrendered. It was then five o'clock. Had the Confederates not spent so much time on Prentice, they might have turned the tide of the battle. Although we were severely mauled, our division, what was left of it, remained intact, and we were confident that tomorrow we, re we would regain our lost ground and drive the Confederates back to Corinth. Besides, General Buell's forces were now arriving, and General Lew Wallace was coming on the field after being lost on the muddy roads between Cumps Landing and Shiloh. General Buell was quite upset with a number of demoralized soldiers hiding between the high bluffs and the river's bank. 
Many of these men had been in the service just a short time and had just recently been issued rifles. The sounds and sights of the battle were just too much for them. We heard later that there were just as many men behind the Confederate lines as they too were just ordinary civilians even though they wore soldier suits. During the night of April 6th and early morning of the 7th, our forces were reorganized. The shelling of the Union gunboats had caused the rebels to fall back, allowing space for Buell's men to line up on our left for the forward push after daylight. It was a sad time for me personally, for with the other casualties, I lost several close friends among the officers killed. One of my regiments, the 15th Illinois, lost a greater percentage of men than any other regiment that day. Although the arrival of Buell's forces was a great help to us, I am sure we still could have pushed the Confederates back to Corinth. They too were exhausted and were extremely low on ammunition and had no food. And Beauregard was not sold on the battle as he had tried to cancel it the night of April 5th. And much to the displeasure of Braxton Bragg, he broke off the engagement earlier than necessary the night before. Because the 4th Division had been so badly hit, we were ordered as reserve as the Union attack took place early in the morning of the 7th. From early morning, the battle raged, the Confederates grudgingly giving ground to the spirit attack and the fresh troops now in our lines. By 2 p.m., the Confederates had started withdrawal. About 3 p.m., my division was again ordered to the front to prepare for a charge. General Grant was here in person to help in the preparations of which was hoped to be the final charge of the battle. The men started on the charge with a wild shout, and the discouraged Confederates broke down and retreated in panic. After the severe rains the night before, the grounds and what was left of the roads were in such deplorable condition that pursuit had to be abandoned. Exhaustion, hunger, and above all, the severe diarrhea of most of the men made further pursuit impossible. Except for a small engagement against forest cavalry and fallen timbers, the beaten Confederates retreated back to Corinth. The terrific Battle of Shiloh or Pittsburgh Landing was over, and that night we occupied our old campsite. Slowly the shades of evening began to fall around us. An unbroken stillness reigned where a short time before echoed the peal of battle. I'll change the scene. Out in the darkness lay thousands sleeping their last sleep. No bugle could awaken them now. No more will they hear the war cry. The sound of the battle will fall unheeded on their ears. They have gone to where there is no war. Their tired spirits are at rest. So wrote Lucius Barber, one of the soldiers of my 15th Illinois Regiment. Illinois Regiment. It may have been better for me had I had been killed in that final charge. And maybe those who would study my career in later times might be more charitable toward me. Shiloh was the pinnacle of my military career. Even my most severe critics could see that I did well as any other general in that battle. I always felt that I was a better officer on the battlefield than in the administrative offices. General Grant had received some bad publicity regarding our losses at Chilo, even to the extent that he was designate, designated Butcher Grant. All this was entirely unjustified, for our losses in proportion were no greater than the enemy's, even less. With Buell's army, our forces were about 63,000 men. Our killed, wounded, and missing amounted to 13,000. Of that figure, at least 2,000 were captured when Prentiss surrendered, which would leave 11,000 out of 62,000. The Confederates, by their own figures, had about 40,000 men, and their losses in killed, wounded, and missing were
where 10,700 are roughly 25%. Our raw losses would be about 15%. Halleck arrived at Pittsburgh Landing April 11th and added to Grant's woes by the fact that he again seemed to be vindictive toward him. He did not show Grant the reports of the divisional commanders, and although designating him as second in command, he did not consult with him as to future plans for the Corinth campaign. After reinforcements arrived, among which were Pope's force of about 30,000 men who had just recently defeated the Confederates at Lipinski's Island No. 10, the federal forces now numbered about 104,000 soldiers. After organizing this great army into three grand divisions and a reserve division, Halleck finally started towards Corinth, the object of the whole campaign of which Shiloh was an unpredicted part. Slowly and ponderously, Halleck brought the great army to Corinth, 53 days after the Battle of Shiloh, a distance of about 30 miles, arriving on May 30th, only to find the city empty, Beauregard having withdrawn his forces to Tupelo, Mississippi. The health of Beauregard's forces was extremely critical, with war wounds the least of the problems. Diseases such as typhoid fever, malaria, dysentery, and diarrhea had, Corinth, had, had caused Corinth to appear as a huge hospital ward. It was a very unhealthy city, and even Beauregard had to take a leave of absence because of illness. His command was turned over to Braxton Bragg. After our arrival at Corinth, I was taken with severe chills and put to bed under the care of that famous nurse, Mother Bickerdyke. She prescribed, prescribed a very hot bath for me. Water was a very scarce item and had to be carried a great distance. After the hot bath, I was put to bed and had a good recovery. Because, as mentioned before, good water was scarce, 15 privates were also given baths in that same water. The great army that left Shiloh on April 11, 1862, had it been kept as a unit, could possibly have gone all the way to Vicksburg, but Halleck divided it. Buell was sent to Chattanooga and lasted, a, lasted as a successful commander only till after Brooks Davis's Perryville battle. In June, Sherman's division and my division were sent to Memphis, now in federal hands. Fortunately for the West, Halleck was called to Washington in July of 62, and Grant was again in command. My division was sent east to Grand Junction, then to Holly Springs, then back to Grand Junction, then to LaGrange, Tennessee, then to Memphis, and after a short stay at Memphis, we were sent to Bolivar, Tennessee. While at Bolivar, I received word from Grant that General Rosecrans, now in command at Corinth, was being besieged and attacked by the Confederates under Van Dorn and Price, October 3rd of 1862. Grant worried about Rosecrans' ability to beat off the foe. So to ensure success, he ordered me to take my division to the rescue of Corinth. Van Dorn's army was repelled at Corinth, but Rosecrans was dilatory in following Van Dorn, and he was allowed to retreat in good order. When Van Dorn's forces were attempting to cross the Hatchie River at Metamora Hills on his way south, my division caught up to them at the crossing. General E.C. Ord had joined my division, and he was a senior to me in rank, so he was put in command of the division. Unfortunately for Ord, but I think fortunately for the Union cause, Ord was wounded and had to leave the field, and I was again in command. Although greatly outnumbered, we kept the Confederates from crossing at the Hatchie at that point, and forced them to go upstream to cross before escaping south. Although they retreated from Corinth and 
with heavy losses, they still were an intact army. After meeting the Federals under my command, they were a beaten army. The result of this engagement at Hatchie River and the retreat from Corinth, Van Dorn was subject to an investigation and was vindicated. They knew he was up against a great division and a capable commander. Van Dorn later lost an engagement due to some bedroom episode. <laughs> His brains were said to have been blown out by an irate husband. In September of 1862, in recognition of my work at Shiloh, I had been promoted to the rank of Major General. On December 2nd of 1862, I was put in command of the 16th Army Corps, which was located in the Memphis area. And it was my responsibility to keep men and supplies flowing to Grant's armies now on their way to the Vicksburg area. The greatest problem I would have would be to cope with that devil Nathan B. Forrest, who was in command of the Confederate Department of West Tennessee, and was probably one of the greatest cavalry commanders the Confederates had. Forrest's strategy, in his own words, was to arrive on the field first with the mostest, and he proved very adept at that. At Memphis, I had to again deal with the civilian population in enemy territory. Because I was a Southerner by birth, I felt I knew the Southern mind, and only by being firm would they understand. I had to censor the newspapers and even the ministers in their pulpits. Grant had authorized me to expel any individual whose speech or actions were anti-union. I didn't like being cooped up in Memphis, as I felt that my place was on the firing line. So I wrote my friend Lincoln, threatening to resign from the army, but Lincoln wrote me to reconsider and to remain in the service. The president always had the welfare of the country at heart. <laughs> About this time, there took place a pretended investigation of certain mem of men of Memphis who was accused of expressing disloyal sentiments. With much publicity, I had them expelled from Memphis and the hoax was carried on so well that they received much sympathy from the secessionists. These men were actually loyal Union men who later became spies for the Union. In fact, one of these men was able to give Grant valuable information regarding Pemberton and Joe Johnson's movements around Vicksburg and Jackson in May of 1863. On February 13, 1863, Grant suggested that I organize a cavalry raid into the South to destroy railroads and caused communication problems to the Confederate forces. The route they would travel would be south from LaGrange, Tennessee, through central Mississippi. Grant suggested that I appoint an Illinois soldier, Colonel Benjamin Grierson, to lead this expedition. I, of course, followed Grant's suggestion and organized the expedition, which was later called Grierson's Raid. Grierson had been a music instructor before the war and was said to have hate, hated horses. So when he volunteered for service, he was assigned to the cavalry. <laughs> the mission was to leave April 27th, which was Grant's birthday. About 10 days before Grierson was to leave, he became very depressed. And in visiting with him, I realized that he was despondent over not being able to see his wife and sons back in Illinois. I therefore found an excuse to send him back to Springfield, which was near his home, so he could see his family before departing on this perilous assignment. He was always grateful for this and expressed it to me many times. The expedition left with about 1,700 men and was a complete success, causing much confusion and consternation to the Confederates. It was a contributing factor in our great Vicksburg victory, and I am proud to have had a part in it. The raid I organized under Grierson contrasts sharply with the disastrous raid conducted by Colonel Abel D. Strite from Nashville, Tennessee to Rome, Georgia, which took place about the same time as the Grierson raid. Strite's raid was a complete failure and resulted in Forrest capturing his entire force. 
I was in frequent correspondence with President Lincoln, and when he did not hear from Grant, he would sometime write me for information. He also set my, sought my ideas on Reconstruction. Vicksburg finally fell to Grant, even though I was not present at the time. Forrest was still giving me trouble, as he was all the other Union commanders in Tennessee and northern Mississippi area. In December of 1863, Forrest was recruiting and gathering horses for his nondescript forces who were encamped at Como Station on the Mississippi and Tennessee Railroad. In January of 1864, I received orders to take two divisions for a trip to Vicksburg and there to join General McPherson in his command, and under the command of General Sherman, we were both to march from Vicksburg to Meridian, Mississippi, where the Confederate General Polk was headquartered and was a supply base for the Confederate Army. At the same time, General William Suey Smith, who is now in command of all the cavalry of the Army of the Tennessee, was to start from the vicinity of LaGrange, Tennessee, with about 7,000 men of the best equipped cavalry of the Union Army. His job was to head for Meridian and rendezvous, rendezvous with Sherman and destroy Forrest on the way. Smith was late getting started. He was supposed to have started February 1st, but did not get moving until February 11th of 1864. The campaign under Sherman from Vicksburg to Meridian was nearly uneventful, as we had practically no opposition. We arrived at Meridian on the 14th of February, only to find that the enemy had fled. We destroyed all railroads in the vicinity and everything else that would aid the Confederate war effort. Sherman was quite upset not to find Smith at Meridian and not to have heard from him. Smith had run into a lot of trouble with that devil Forrest. Forrest had rumors spread that he had between eight and 9,000 men ready to engage Suey Smith, and this caused Smith to be quite apprehensive of being so outnumbered. The fact is that Forrest had only about 3,500 men at the most and they were poorly armed. Smith first encountered Forrest at a place called West Point in Mississippi on the Mobile and Ohio Railroad. From there on, Forrest drove the frightened Smith, allowing him no place to make a stand, and finally Smith retreated all the way back nearly to Memphis with a great loss of horses and equipment. It took him 10 days to reach West Point, and he came back in five days. Sherman gave up Smith ever arriving at Meridian, so he ordered us back to Vicksburg, and later I was ordered re to return to Memphis with my command. Needless to say, Sherman really lit into Suey Smith when he found out what happened. After the Meridian expedition, my command was badly depleted. 5,000 of my men were assigned to General T. Kilby Smith, and some of the rest were assigned to General Joseph Maurer. I was expected to, to defend Memphis and all of Tennessee with the small force I had left, and with Forrest always menacing every inch of the area. To add to my problems with Forrest, on April 12, 1864, Forrest and his men recaptured Fort Pillow, inflicting a great loss of men and supplies. I was blamed somewhat for this, as it was in my military district. I just did not have sufficient men to properly man all these fortified places with my manpower so depleted after the Meridian expedition. All my troubles with Forrest made me again wish that maybe I'd been better off had I been killed at Shiloh. Although others had failed to stop Forrest, I was the fall guy and was relieved of my command at Memphis on April 18, 1864. My successor was Major General Cadwallader C. Washburn, who was from a family of distinguished politicians. One of the first things Washburn did was to write Grant that he did not have sufficient forces to move out from Memphis and assail Forrest 
and to venture away from Memphis would imperil the city, the very thing I had been saying right along. Washburn took possession of all the horses in Memphis and the surrounding area and asked that additional cavalry be sent to him from Vicksburg. Apparently, they were not going to try to get Forrest with the little Forrest I had to work with. Sherman also sent General Samuel Sturgis to take command of all the cavalry. Sturgis set off from Memphis on June 2, 1864, with a force of 3,000 well-equipped cavalry, 4,800 infantry, and 18 cannon. On June 10th, he arrived in the vicinity of Bryce Crossroads, roads where that devil Forrest relayed him and gave him a humiliating beating. Sturgis had to repeat, retreat all the way back close to Memphis, practically a route, and they criticized me. I at least kept him out of Memphis. Then on August 2nd, Forrest came right into Memphis. He knew I was no longer in command, so he probably thought he could risk it. Forrest and his men dashed into Memphis in the still of the night, hoping to ca capture Washburn and myself. Some of his men rode right into the Gayoso Hotel where I had been staying after being relieved of my command, but fortunately I was not there that night. Washburn, who was supposed to take care of Forrest so handily, had to flee in his nightshirt. Yet they fired me for not keeping Forrest out of Tennessee, but Washburn couldn't keep him out of his bedroom. I was given a leave of absence to recuperate and rest and return home for three months. My next assignment was to New Orleans and the Department of the Gulf. Once again, I was accused of being too harsh on the civilian population. I dealt with them with an iron hand. Graft and dishonesty, dishonesty were rampant in New Orleans at that time. And of course, I couldn't escape its consequences. I was accused of things which did not happen and that I did not do. And I became so enraged that I demanded an investigation in order to clear my good name. Adjutant General Rawlins said that the investigation would not be worthwhile, and the charges against me were malicious, unsupported by any testimony except that which was suborned. Secretary of War Stanton wrote that there is not a shadow of any credible evidence impeaching the correctness of my administration, and there was no occasion for further proceedings, and that up to his final hour, Lincoln had full confidence in me. I returned to civilian life trying to adjust to peace times. In 1866, I took part in organizing the Grand Army of the Republic, and I was its first national commander. I was again elected to the Illinois State Legislature and was a presidential elector for the state at large in 1868. Grant appointed me minister to Columbia, where I helped to create interest in a canal to be dug through the Isthmus of Panama. When I returned from Columbia, I successfully ran for Congress from, Congress from my district. My county happened to be the smallest county in the district, and Winnebago, the adjoining county, was the largest. So later, when the Winnebago delegates to the Congressional Caucus decided they wanted a man from their own county in Congress, they dumped me. I had served two terms. I took it in good grace, but my friends were indignant and insisted on nominating me at a rump convention, but I was defeated in the election. I had campaigned for Garfield when he ran for president. So after he was elected, he appointed me minister to Peru. Peru was seeking favors from the United States at that time, so I was given a splendid welcome when I arrived there. Chile and Peru had been engaging in a war over the vast deposit of nitrates there. The U.S. minister to Chile was another former general, Judson Kilpatrick, and he and I got into some violent arguments, each one endeavoring to protect the country to which he was accredited. 
The newspaper said that Peru and Chile turned their war over to us to fight. <laughs> Again, I was accused of things I did not do. I was offered a bribe of $250,000 to use my influence to gain the nitrate concession for an American syndicate called the Peruvian Company. I reported the bribe immediately to the State Department and that I thought the claims of the so-called Peruvian Company were baseless. A congressional investigation followed and the committee found me innocent of any wrongdoing. The newspapers brought all, out all the old scandal stories about me, even though I was far away in Peru and could not defend myself. Secretary of State Blaine granted me a leave of absence to come back to the States to defend myself against these false accusations. But I never got back. Death overtook me March 27, 1882, when I was 67 years of age. The country of Peru knew that I was trying to help them all I could, and in my honor, all their buildings were draped in mourning. They returned my body to the United States in a Peruvian warship. My funeral on April 30, 1882, was the largest ever to take place in northern Illinois. Thirty different fraternal orders were in the procession and many with their bands, and several special chains bought notables from all parts of the state. Even the Chicago Tribune, which was critical of me at times, said kind things about me. My obituary was next to that honoring Ralph Waldo Emerson. One of your contemporaries said that old soldiers never die, they just fade away. So in fading away, let me close with the words my friend Lincoln used when he left Springfield to assume the presidency in 1861. Lincoln closed a rather sad little speech with these words, trusting in him who can go with me and remain with you and be everywhere for good. Let us confidently hope that all will yet be well. To his care, commending you, as I hope in your prayers you will commend me, I bid you an affectionate farewell. <laughs>